Well, today we're going to wrap up our study of John's vision of the new heavens and of the new earth. And uh, by the way, that means that if you're in a community group, uh, we're ending a week early. So um, you can knock off for your summer break a week early or make up for the week maybe that you missed in your study. Um, But today we're going to wrap up our study of John's vision of the new heavens and of the new earth. And one of the things that I've said every single week is that it's not really just a study of the new heavens and earth, but primarily it's the study of the new city. It's a study of the city of God, which is who, because all throughout this series, we've said it's a who, it's a who, it's a who, it's not a what. In other words, one of the things that we have drilled down on and, and really kind of emphasized the most is this idea that the city that John sees and then describes to us in terms of foundations and walls and gates and streets, the physical elements of a physical city is not literally a physical city. John is not coming to us in this vision and describing to us a literal city that is 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles tall. It forms a 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 mile perfect cube that then itself completely encompasses the entirety of the cosmos, all of the new heavens, all of the new earth inside of this cube, which then sits upon 12 jeweled foundations that form a giant cosmic ziggurat. That's not what he's describing. What John sees and then describes to us in terms of gates and in terms of walls and in terms of foundations and in terms of you know, streets and the various physical elements and components of a city is a picture of me and a picture of you and a picture of all of the followers of Jesus, the entirety of the congregation of the people of God upon the return of Christ. That's the city. The city is us. It's a who. And what John is doing is he's using the image of the city and the images of all of its different components, walls and gates and foundations and all of that stuff, in order to tell us something about who it is that we're going to be in that moment when we come with the Lord and inhabit the literal, physical new heavens and new earth. And something about what our life is going to be like. And so all through this series, John has been revealing that to us by means of the image of the city. We've seen that. We've talked about that. But one of the other things that we've seen and talked about is that John is so incredibly careful with his language. He constructs this city in such a way as to cause those of us who know something about the Scriptures to think about other places. And so, for example, he constructs this city in such a way as to cause us to recall the very beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. It's as if he's saying to us, hey, guys, if you want to know something about what you're going to be like when the Lord returns and you take up your residence together with him and all of the people of God throughout all of the generations in the new heavens and in the new earth, and you want to know what that life's going to be like, you need to be thinking in terms of the garden. And so then he describes the city in such a way as to cause us to think about that. So, for example, the city is four square. Well... So is the garden. The city is oriented to the east. So was the garden. The city was located on a high place. It's a giant cosmic ziggurat, the garden on a mountain. The city contains a river. Well, so did the garden. The city contains the tree of life. So did the garden. An angel is noted to be posted at the gate of every one of the gates of the city. And angels were posted, were they not, at some point? They were posted at some point at the gate to the Garden of Eden. And more than that, the new city is the place where God and man dwell in perfect relationship. And guess what? So was the garden until what? Until man sinned. And then what happened? And I know what you want to say. You want to say, well, I think I do know what happened. What happened at that point is God came. He cursed the man and the woman. He immediately 
cast them out of the garden. And then he took the flaming cherubim, Tom, which I had forgotten about until you just mentioned it, and he posted them at the gates of the garden with their swords, remember? I mean, when you were a kid, that was cool. The flaming swords, and they're guarding the way to the tree of life. Why are they guarding the way to the tree of life? Because God is merciful. And he did not want humanity to exist forever in a sinful, fallen, tragic state. And all of that's true, by the way. I mean, that's all in the Bible. That's part of the story. But you're missing something if that's what you, your mind went to. There's something else that happens, and it happens first. Our first parents eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and suddenly they are awakened to a reality. And it is a reality that everybody needs to awaken to. The reality is, A, they're sinners, and B, that's a problem. See, they know God. They've walked with Him in the cool of the day. They understand His perfections, His glories, His holiness, and all of a sudden they realize their sin is a real issue in the presence of an altogether holy God. And so what do they do? They run around in the garden frantically trying by their own efforts to cover over their own sin, their own shame, and their own guilt. They actually tear the leaves off of the fig tree, which is a tree that is known for its sweetness, and they put those leaves to the unnatural and bitter use of using them to try to cover over their sin and guilt and shame, okay? It's like they understand that they're exposed in a number of different ways to the Lord, and so they literally stitch together the first pair of clothes from fig leaves. And we look at that today and we think, you know, that is pitiful. I mean, that is a ridiculous idea. And then we do the same thing, just not with fig leaves. Almost everybody on planet Earth right now is trying to cover over their sin. And you know what they're trying to cover it with? The fig leaves of their good deeds. It's kind of like we all understand that we've done some bad things. I mean, we don't struggle with that as humanity much. It's like, oh, yeah, I screw up. We just don't realize it's a problem. Or we figure it's going to be okay because look at all the good stuff that I've done. You know, I mean, have you really kept a record of all the bad stuff you did? Have you checked with your parents? I mean, how much good do you need to do? I I guess it's kind of what I'm saying. You, You have a perfect record there and all the good stuff that you've done. And by the way, what is good and bad and who gets to define that? Because we can't agree as human beings amongst ourselves on what that is. And if you use God's standard, you may have caught it. It's what Adam and Eve was concerned about. God measures us by the measuring stick of His own glories, of His own perfections, of His own holiness, and that tolerates no bad deeds at all. It's fig leaves, guys. I think some of us move through life, and and we kind of try to atone for our sins, to cover over. That's what that word means. We try to atone or to cover over our sins by kind of punishing ourselves. And I don't think that we try to do that consciously. I even see that among believers, particularly those who have been beaten down in life, and they feel like dirt, and they treat themselves like dirt, unworthy even though the Lord Himself died and purchased them with His precious blood. But nevertheless... You treat yourself like you're deserving of the wrath of God, which actually we all are apart from faith in Christ. But there's sort of like this this problem going on in your life where you beat yourself down and you beat yourself down and you beat yourself down. I don't know, maybe thinking subconsciously that if you punish yourself enough, then God will not need to punish you much. But I would ask you, I mean, how long do you have to be punished for sins committed against an infinitely holy God? Because I'm going to go with infinite. 
So that's fig leaves too, isn't it? You know, one of the other tactics that we take to cover over our sin is we just deny that it even exists. You know, we throw out God or we change God. God is a God who really doesn't have any standards. God is a God who doesn't really care about sin. God is a God who, you know, throws His holiness out in light of His love and and mercy. He doesn't compromise any of those things. He cures them in Jesus. But that's a problem, and and we literally, I mean, it's a problem to the point where we have to beat our conscience into submission to this lie that the way that we live doesn't matter, even though somewhere deep in our heart we know that it does. Our first parent's sin, guys, in the Garden of Eden, this garden that John wants you to be thinking about, he has so constructed the new city in this vision as to force you to think about the Garden of Eden. He's going, hello, if you want to know about this, you need to think about that. They sin in that garden and they run around stitching fig leaves together, hoping to cover over their own sin. And just like all of our attempts to do the same thing, it doesn't work. And what does God do? Because it's awesome, it's merciful, and it is a lesson to them and to us, to everyone who listens. God calls them to deal with their sin. He calls, He comes looking for them. You know, you think that you've come looking for God. He's come looking for you. And he calls them to deal honestly with what they've done. And then he takes two innocent animals. It's a picture of Christ, you see. He takes these two innocent animals, the innocent who dies for the guilty, and he kills them. And from their skins, he creates a covering. Sending two lessons, really. Number one, only God can cover sin. And number two, it takes innocent blood to cover the sin of the guilty. And then God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to wander the earth along with all of their posterity, all of us who would be born from them, descend from them physically, with this sort of understanding or this memory of a better place, this this psychic recollection of a garden, of a place that we know that we're made for, of a place that John answers at the end of the Bible with this vision. And so anyway, in his attempts to get us to understand what we're going to be like and what life is going to be like in the new city forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and earth, he says, okay, now I want you to think about the garden. But he also constructs his city in such a way as to cause us to think about the Holy of Holies. And we've talked a little bit about that too. What is that? The Holy of Holies is that place in the tabernacle of Israel originally, but then also in the temple of Israel that Solomon built on the Temple Mount. You'll remember, it's the perfect cube. Does that sound familiar? It's the way he describes his city. In which God dwelt in the midst of his people, it speaks of the desire of this God to dwell with us. But it also reveals his inability to do it as a result of our sin. He dwells with us in our midst, but he's hidden. And he's hidden behind a veil. It's fascinating. See, the Holy of Holies is four square. The Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies is like the city oriented to the east. And the Holy of Holies is guarded by angels. You're like, really? Because I missed that part. Well, go back and read about the veil. Because on this six-inch thick veil, there is embroidered, or was, cherubim. It's the same language used as for the Garden of Eden. And I have no doubt but that they were holding flaming swords. And what is the message of the cherubim, both at the gates of the Garden of Eden and at the gates, if you will, of the Holy of Holies? The message is the way to God and to the tree of life is barred. Stay out. 
John's calling all these things to mind, you see. He wants you to have all of these categories, all of these thoughts, and he wants you to bring them to your understanding of this vision. And he's assuming also that when you come to the study of this vision, that you know that when Jesus Christ, the God-man, you see, only God can take away the sins of the world. Only an infinite being can suffer infinitely the infinite punishment for our infinite transgressions. The God-man, only one who is both God and man, he partakes in our humanity, for it's humanity that he's come to save. Or Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John describes him in his gospel and in this book of Revelation, sheds his innocent blood that we might be covered, that our sin might truly be atoned or covered for. John is assuming you know that too when you come to this vision. We pick up our study this morning in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. And keep in mind that when the Lord died on that cross, that veil Six inches thick. I mean, you think it's cool when somebody tears a phone book, right? That veil with the cherubim was torn in two when he breathed his last. So what's the message? It's not any longer the way to God and the tree of life is barred. Now the message, because of the death of Christ, is the way to God and the tree of life is open, but it's open to those whose sins have been covered by His blood. John assumes you know this, and in Revelation 21, verse 22, he starts this, and he says, And I saw no temple in the city, which is kind of surprising, you know, because, I mean, if you don't know all of this stuff that I just talked about, you're thinking, well, John's a Jew, and the whole Jewish world revolves around the temple, so surely there's going to be a temple. He starts to describe the city again, and he says, no temple. And he specifically points that out, and it makes perfect sense that it not be there. Why? Because what is the city? The city is a who, isn't it? It's, it's us. It's the people of God. And who are the people of God? It's all of those who have brought their sin to Christ and had their sin atoned for. There's no sin in the city is the idea. And so therefore, there is nothing to separate us for all of eternity from the Lord God. The cherubim are gone. The veil is torn. And everything that has separated us from God historically is now itself history is the point. The way to God and the tree of life is open. John says, and I saw no temple in the city. Why? For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, who, as it's become very clear through this vision, are everywhere. He's saying the new city is like the Garden of Eden. You know, you read about the Garden of Eden. There's not a building in there that, no, this is the place we worship God, and He's behind, you know, He's in this little cube, and He's behind that veil, and you can't go in there. And He walks with the man in the cool of the day. John's saying, think about that. Remember that. No separations. It's like the Holy of Holies. Except this time, instead of having its walls being small and containing God and keeping everyone else out, the Holy of Holies, as we saw last week, has been expanded to encompass the entire universe, if you will. All of the heavens and earth are contained now within the Holy of Holies. And instead of keeping us out, we're in. It's stunning. And then as with the temple of old, which contained the lampstand, there's a light in the new temple. And John then turns his attention to that. He says, and the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it. He doesn't, by the way, say that there is no sun or moon. He just says, we don't need it for light. They're ornaments. 
The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And I really can't explain all the physics of that to you, okay? But I do know that what lights up the new heavens and earth is the glory of the living God. And I know also that it's a redemptive glory. Why? Because the lamp is the Lamb. The lamp is the Lord Christ. It refers to His sacrifice. It refers to His redemption, His purchase of all of us by the shedding of His innocent blood. What John is saying, I think, is that there will be no place in the new heavens and earth that we can go, okay, where we will not see, where we will not feel, where we will not sense, where we will not experience the benefits of the redemption that is ours because of Christ. He says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then he says, by its, meaning its redemptive light, will the nations walk. Every nation, every language, every race, every color, every tribe, every stripe and flavor of humanity, God collects up from every people group that have descended from this Adam, and from every people group He redeems some. And all of them come together in the new city, and all of them walk in the light of His redemptive glory. And the kings of the earth, he says, the greatest in the earth will bring their glory into it, for it is deserving of their glory and of mine and of yours. And its gates, which face every direction, if you recall, its gates will never be shut by day because there are no enemies and there is nothing to fear, you see. All with faith in Christ are welcome. And there will be no night there. It is the everlasting day of the glory of the Lamb, which penetrates all space and time. It's phenomenal. And he says, and they, the kings of the nation, will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nation. And then he says this. He says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only who? Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life and the indelible innocent blood of the Lamb of God, of the Savior of men, who is Jesus. Guys, John is an evangelist, and he is writing this vision to us, not to thrill us, not to satisfy our intellectual curiosities only, not to go, wow, this is going to be really cool, this is going to help you pass the Bible trivia you know, game that you play with your family on vacation. It's not about any of those things. He's holding the beauties and the glories of heaven that are purchased for us by the Lamb of God who is Christ before us. And he's saying, hello, the gates of the city are open, but they're only open to those who have faith in this Jesus, who bring their sin to this Jesus. He's an evangelist. He's calling everyone to faith through this vision. And then listen carefully to what he says next because he constructs his language in such a way as to call you to think about another place in the Bible. And it's not the Garden of Eden this time, and it's not the Holy of Holies this time, but it is very significant and it's very subtle. He says, Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, this water of life that John makes very clear in his writings only Jesus can give. I mean, you think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, a picture of every single one of us, somebody who is broken in every way whom the Lord has a divine appointment with. And what does He offer her? Living water. The angel showed me the river of living water, this water that flows only from Christ. Bright as crystal, it's glowing in the light of His redemptive glory and flowing from where? Because it's significant. From the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's one throne. God the King and the Lamb. 
through the middle. It's actually, in the Greek, it says in the midst, and that's significant, of the street of the city. And then he says also on either side of the river, either side being also significant, the tree of life. And so he's talking about the tree of life like it's singular, okay, but, but then he describes it as two trees. So what do we have? We've got the throne of God and the lamb in the middle, right? You following me so far? We have a tree on the right of it. We have a tree on the left of it. And from the throne of God and the lamb in the middle is flowing the river of living water that John has made clear can only come from Christ. What is that a picture of? Because John uses these phrases in the midst and on either side in only one other location, and it's in his description of the crucifixion of Christ. Listen to what he says. In John 19, verse 16, he says, So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And then here it is, and it's not quite as clear in the English. He says, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one, here's the phrase, on either side. So what do you have? You have Jesus, and you have a tree to the right, and you have a tree to the left. They're hung on trees. You you understand that. More often than not, in the New Testament, you'll read cross the words tree. That's the actual word. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side. So he's got a tree on the right and a tree on the left, and Jesus between them. He's in the midst is actually the way that it says. It attracts the language exactly. And it gets all the more poignant when you realize that Jesus is hanging there with a sign above his head that all the Jews found to be objectionable, right? But it's the king of the Jews. Every time you see God pictured in the Bible on the throne, he's pictured as a king. So here he is on the throne of the cross, if you will a tree on either side. And how is his death confirmed? By the, by the piercing of his side, from which flows blood and water, the river of life, which flows forth from Christ. It's very subtle, but it's there. And again, you know, I mean, it doesn't give us that kind of image and cause us to think about those kinds of things so we can win the Bible trivia game. We can walk out and go to lunch and go, well, that was kind of cool, you know. We never saw that before. Or what was he talking about? I just went right over my head. We're supposed to look at something like that and go, now, what does that teach me? I mean, what is that saying to me? What is John telling me about heaven and, and, and what it's going to be like and what I'm going to be like and all of these things that we've been talking about now for five weeks? I came up with a bunch of stuff. I think maybe he's telling us that the glory of this heaven that we will know will remind us of how and where the glory of heaven was purchased for us. He's already told us that the redemptive glory of Jesus will light up every place in this universe. Or maybe he's telling us that heaven will be a place where we will forever grow in our understanding and knowledge and appreciation for the love of God, which John makes very clear in John 3.16, is most demonstrated by God giving His Son, for God so loved that he gave his son. So maybe that's it. Or maybe it's just kind of a general statement that heaven will be this place in which we will forever enjoy the spoils that are ours as a result of the work of Christ on the cross. That's a possibility too. But there's one other possibility that's interesting. Maybe what he's saying is that wherever Jesus is, whether that's on the throne of the cross, if you will, at Golgotha, or the the throne of the new heavens and of the new earth, wherever Jesus is, That's where heaven is. 
Maybe that's it. Maybe he's saying, you know, heaven isn't so much a place, although it is a place. Please hear that. As it is a person. That is to say, where Christ is, that really defines the beauties of heaven. You know, Charles Spurgeon is famous for a million different things, but one of the stories that he told over and over again was a story of an older man who loved the Lord and was a devout follower of Jesus and quite the evangelist, apparently, and tried to tell everybody about Jesus and and the glories of heaven. But he, he told these things specifically to this younger man who was very much a skeptic and who, you know, kind of patted him on the head every once in a while and endured his preaching, quote unquote, and scoffed at him and so forth. And over the years, he shared the gospel with this young man until finally this older man became very, very sick and he was on his deathbed and it's clear that he's going to die. And so the younger man came to see him and to say goodbye. Really, this is it. I mean, this is going to be their last conversation. And this older man took this as his last opportunity to tell about the glories of Christ and of heaven and what awaited him just on the other side of death, which is imminent for this guy. And the younger man who's exasperated at this point said, you know, how do you know that? I mean, what if you wake up and you're not in heaven and then you're in hell? What then? And the older man thought about it for a second and he said, well, he said, my Lord has promised me that where he is, there I will be with him forever. And he says, you know, if I wake up and I'm not in heaven, but I'm in hell, then he will be there with me and I will throw my arms around him and that will be heaven for me. The greatest thing about heaven is not, you know, all of these other things. It's it's Jesus. It's Christ. And I think the challenge for us is to grow to love him as much as John does and that old man. So John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, glowing in the light of the redemptive glory of Jesus, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle or in the midst of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit. It's a diverse place. Yielding its fruit each month, there is a perpetual harvest of life in the new heavens and in the new earth. Leaves of the trees, he says, were not for the covering of sin and shame and guilt. All that's covered by the blood of Christ. But the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants, that's us, by the way, will worship Him. He says, then we will see His face. That's a stunning thought. And drawing back on the image of the temple and of the tabernacle and and, and of the Holy of Holies, he then says, and his name will be on their foreheads. He's describing us like the high priest who once a year, having made atonement, covering for his sin through the shedding of the blood of the innocent lamb and for the sins of the people, with the name of God literally on his forehead, would once a year only go behind the veil and enter in. No more veils, no more angels. Forever in the presence of our God, we get to see His face. And we bear the mark of His name. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign 
forever and ever. Amen. That's it. That's the vision. So I'm going to ask you a question that I think John would ask you. And it's very simply, do you know Jesus? Not do you know about Him? Not can you pass the quiz and answer the test questions? Do you know Him? Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life with the indelible with the indelible blood of Christ, the Lamb of God who shed His innocent blood to cover your sin? Because John is telling you in this vision, hey, 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 gates are open. And you're welcome if you'll just come to faith in Him. Bring Him your sin and stop trying to cover it over or deny it. And let Him cover it for you and give you life and grant you the great gift of this eternal city. So I would encourage you to do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You uh, for this apostle. Uh, We thank You for Your Holy Spirit uh, who has written down this vision for us. We thank You uh, for Him who made it all possible, for the Lord Jesus. Where He is, there is heaven. And Father, I lift up this vision to You, and I pray that You would capture our hearts, our minds, and our lives with it. I pray that we would come to realize that it is deserving not just of the glory of the kings, but of my glory, of our glory. It is the most glorious thing that we can give our lives to. I pray that You would encourage us with the hope of this vision, for this is our future. And I pray, Lord, that for all those who don't yet know Christ, that Today they would come to Him, and they would see His face, if you will, and they would sense His mercy and experience His grace. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.